who the cult film was till we became one. Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. <laughs> With Big Lebowski. Why is it such a cult classic? It's just a damn good film. When it came out, I think it went over most people's heads. I saw Pink Flamingos went at the height of its popularity, and then I'd see it in court when I was charged with obscenity at 10 a.m. <laughs> I love Spinal Tap. It takes a while for people to really understand what's going on. Welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Adam, and then with me today, of course, is uh, your other co-host. Scott. And today we're, again, doing a one-off episode. Um, uh, I'm going to actually hand this one over to Scott because, as you can tell, we're we're talking about this documentary series, um, though it's kind of a film. Um, it, it's called Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. And it's a three-part series, but the first one that we're talking about is the part one, Midnight Madness. And I'm going to hand it over to Scott to kind of fill you in on, like, the where's and how's we found out about this and then we'll kind of go into the film right away. Yeah, sure thing. I, uh, I had a PR rep actually reach out to me and say, Hey, were you aware of this, uh, uh, little documentary series of films, uh, that is coming out it's called time warp, the greatest cult films of all time. And then they're doing a volume one, volume two and volume three. Uh, and they're going to be hitting, you know, on-demand VOD outlets and everything once a month uh, in April, May, and June. And so uh, this first one is already available. It dropped on April the 21st. And then uh, there's going to be another one on May the 19th and another one on June 23rd. And I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a sucker about movies about movies. And, uh, and so, I mean, you know, I mean, face it, I, I think everybody who likes you know, commentary tracks and behind the scenes uh, extras on DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff like that are kind of the same way. You know, we like to see into the industry. We like to see behind the curtain. Uh, that kind of stuff fascinates us. And then we have friends who look at us like, why would you care about any of that? So, you know, it's it's our thing that, uh, that, that interests us. Uh, and so uh, the first one uh, is Midnight Madness Films. Uh, and then they're going to do a horror and sci-fi. That's the May installment. And then comedy and camp uh, is the June installment. And so, oddly, uh, this dovetailed really well with something that I had was already watching uh, or had intended to watch. Have you seen the uh, film on Amazon Prime at the drive-in? Yes, I have. Um, that's About the actually... guys in Pennsylvania? Yep. Yep, that's exactly. Yep. yep, yeah. I've I've definitely I've definitely seen. I just saw it maybe about a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I, I literally saw it like a few days ago, and uh, and so it's it's a film uh, about a uh, uh, it's a documentary about a, a drive-in movie theater in a small town in Pennsylvania uh, that has been operating for sixty-seven years without stop. Uh, and they're dealing with technological issues. They're using literally the original projectors that were in that drive-through, and the world is going digital, leaving them behind. And you can imagine the drive a drive-in uh, in rural uh, Pennsylvania uh, is not knocking down enough money to reel out sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars to revamp their entire theater with digital equipment. And so they have to make a decision in the film of are we going to try to go digital and continue to 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 show first run movies or are we going to become more of kind of like, 
you know, a cult film, uh, older films, black and white films, kind of a repertory kind of theater. And so they, they make the decision to stay 35 millimeter purists. And so you kind of watch the process that they go through to try to, to fulfill their vision of being kind of true to, to film and cinema, uh, while also being an ongoing, you know, business. And so this was recommended or offered to me like right on the heels of seeing that. And so I thought it was really interesting that so many of these would be drive-in theater type films, uh, that it really just kind of worked together nicely. So if you're, if you're interested in a little double feature of sorts, if you're a prime subscriber, you could watch at the drive-in, uh, and then you could check out the first installment of this series, which I thought was, was really good. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, uh, it, you know, it's very much a, you know, talking heads, film clips, uh, kind of documentary. And a lot of people frown on that and say that, you know, that's boring and it doesn't push the documentary form and what have you. But, you know, my feeling is if you're going to make a documentary like this, the question becomes, well, who do you have? Absolutely. You know, who are the talking heads? And so in this case, they are Joe Dante, John Waters, Jeff Bridges, Pam Greer, Rob Reiner, you know, Michael McKean, Gary Busey. I can go on and on. Penelope Spheris, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to do a purely kind of journalistic you know, talking head and history kind of film, you know, they, they kind of knocked it out of the park with everybody's participation that they got in this thing. No, absolutely. Um, I, um, like, um, it, it's like you just, like you just said, like, I love, like, uh, <laughs> it, it's a term that I think that a lot of people, it can be applicable for, which is insider baseball. Like, like whenever you're into a subject, um, I feel like if you're a real fan of them, you you deep dive into whatever subject that you love. Like I know, like I know people who will like. I mean, like you're you're one of you're uh, you're one of them, a, a baseball fanatic, and will deep dive into the subject of baseball because there's so much to be there's so much like you know that you can mine from a topic. And I think that like with film, it's the same way. Like we like you know like. I love movies about movies like you, like, you know, um, we don't get really arty here on the B movie podcast, but day for night is like one of my favorite films. Uh, like I love the whole subgenre state in Maine. Uh, there are these movies that are like, uh, like even like something as silly as Bowfinger, which I really want to cover, uh, on the, the podcast. Cause I just love good Eddie Murphy movies and good Steve Martin movies. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> right. Love that film. <laughs> um, keep it together. Adam. It, it, keep, keep it together. K I T keep it together. Keep it together. Keep it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I just adore that film. Uh, um, and like what I like, even, um, even something that maybe treads over like, films and topics that I've, you know, watched or know about, uh, like, you know, know, are well-worn, like some of these films that is covered in the first one is, it's okay for me. I can go over those again, but the, 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 the real meat and potatoes for this one, for me, was the things that I seen, but I didn't give attention to because I saw so long ago that... You know, like, so, yeah. like, this is, like, a great way to, like, kind of, like, kind of talk about this film without 
really kind of divulging everything about it and just kind of like kind of going through a list. Because, I mean, there's literally I think that there's like there's actually 25 films that they actually talk about. And I'll list them so that, you know, but like so like things like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is something that I saw very early on in my like, you know, like in my info dump days of like loving cinema like finding out that like i had the bug um but it wasn't something that i really kind of latched on to it wasn't something that was like a um like an essential or an elemental film for me but this documentary in the way that they talk about it and they kind of like they get rod zombie who i know is a fan who takes so much of his aesthetic from like Russ Meyer, but puts it in context in a way that I was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I need to reapproach Russ Meyer films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about this documentary is I think that it kind of meets everybody wherever you are, as far as your knowledge base is concerned. Yeah. So you've got, you know, and I say younger viewers, that may be, you know, a generalization. I'm sure that there are younger cinephiles who've seen tons of this stuff. But I tend to find that there's this trend of, you know, what happened during your lifetime, but how far have you reached back? Exactly. No, no, you're 100% right about that. And and, and we've kind of discussed that before. And so, you know, it's kind of like when people are talking to me about, you know, I've just exhausted everything there is to see during the lockdown and the quarantine and all that. And I'm like, wow, clearly you don't subscribe to the Criterion channel because (laughs) there are decades worth of things that you have not seen. Absolutely. And so occasionally, you know, you'll drop a reference around somebody and and they'll just look at you like, I mean, younger, uh, and they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? And, and it's almost like a write-off with some of them. Like, oh, yeah. that was, that was before me. And I was like, do you know how much stuff before me? I mean, you know, I wasn't uh, alive when on the waterfront came out, but I've seen it. Uh, and so, um, and so I think the nice thing about this documentary is if you haven't been exposed to these films, it becomes a great roster of stuff to check out. Absolutely. And, and if you have been exposed to them, like you and I have been, which I think judging uh, when you're a film critic and have you know dedicated a lifetime to watching all of this stuff, it, it's a nice nostalgia trip. You know, it's it's nice going back through these and and reminding yourself of how good these films are. And then once again, the key is. You know, if we're going to go back and revisit, you know, Foxy Brown and coffee and things like that. Well, I mean, who better to have on camera than Pam Greer to talk about it? And Jack Hill. So, like, yeah, exactly. The oh, one yeah, to combo. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so uh, so I think the nice thing about it is it kind of can educate people whose background with cinema isn't as broad as ours is. And then it's almost like a little greatest hits review uh, with some some seriously important figures from from film discussing the movies. No, absolutely, and I think one of the great things about the um, the doc is is that they get people where the film that they're talking about, like if it's a fan of the film, it's it's their Star Wars. Like that's the only way that I can kind of put it. It's the it's the film that flicked the switch that made them that that kind of chemically changed them. 
to be a fan of film. Like like hearing Adam Rifkin talk about Harold and Maude and his attention to the film and makes me like it makes me re want to watch rewatch that uh, that particular how how Ashby film. It's not my favorite. I hate to say that because I know that people. They die on they they die on that hill that Harold and Maude hill um like to me like like Ashby it's the last detail like like the last mm-hmm. detail to me is just that fucking raw nerve of a great script and a great Jack Nicholson performance but but that but Adam Rifkin going off on on Harold and Maude and him talking about the tattoo was like oh shit I gotta see that movie again I have to yep. reapproach it with new eyes and. Um, it kind of like leads me to like, so like, like it, it kind of like this whole thing with the time warp. I mean, we've kind of talked about it offline and we were talking about how, like, what was, what was the thing that hit you that made, that changed you that like literally just went like it, it went into the bloodstream. It's, it's kind of like <laughs> film is like, like a drug addiction. It's like that first hit. And then you have to like you you just find this bigger world and you have to deep go deeper and deeper. What was that? What was the thing that kind of do you even remember? Yeah, you know, the 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 funny thing is, is, you know, if anybody ever asks me, mm-hmm. you know, how did you get into film criticism, journalism, all of that kind of stuff? Uh, I always say, well, you know, it was almost a perfect split between my two parents. My mom turned me into a movie freak and my dad taught me how to write. Ah, okay. And, uh, and so my dad was a great writer and a great editor. And so, uh, you know, I kind of went into journalism school almost with a leg up, uh, because I had survived my dad's writing boot camp. Uh, anytime I had something that I had to write for school, uh, I would, you know, run it by him, but he wasn't one of these people who was, you know, going to do my homework for me. Uh, he'd sit down with me and say, well, now, come on, you can do better than this. What's a better way to put this? You know, what's a, you know, you can lose some words here, things like that. And so a lot of my editing tricks that I learned early on were from him. Uh, but the love of film came from my mom. Now, my mom was not a, a midnight madness, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, gonzo film kind of person. She was a, um, huge fan of, you know, just old movies, uh, Cary Grant, uh, you know, musicals with Fred Astaire, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so anytime I came in, you know, it would be, you know, the quiet man would be playing or, uh, or, you know, singing in the rain would be playing or, or what have you. And so she was very much into the older movies, knew all the stars had seen all the films countless times. Uh, and so I would watch some of those movies with her. But for me, my own personal kind of gateway into it, it, it was really a couple of things that you would expect given my age. I'm I'm 51, uh, so Star Wars hit when I was what eight? Yeah, nine, seven, whatever. <laughs> and uh, and so my dad took me to see Star Wars. You know, uh, the uh, I don't really know that it was opening weekend because you know it was one of those things that caught momentum over time. Yeah. And it wasn't a huge thing the weekend that it opened. It was a huge thing after it opened. Uh, but at some point uh, early in its release, my dad took me to see Star Wars. And so it just blew me away. I mean, I just wanted to live at the movies. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, and then a little bit later on, uh, I saw uh, Halloween on, of all things, it was on like NBC or somewhere. It was, it was a network version uh, that they showed on a Halloween night 
And so, of course, it would have been edited. It would have had commercials that kind of stopped the momentum. And despite all that, I was just totally absorbed in that movie, completely freaked me out. But the way that it freaked me out was kind of like fun to me. I wasn't like lying awake at night, having nightmares and all that (laughs) kind of stuff. It was like that edge of the seat adrenaline. And I was like, I've got to find that again. You know, I was like a, a, a movie junkie. Uh, almost overnight after I saw that film. And so that was, those were really the two that I remember earliest uh, making me into someone who, you know, wanted to see movies and, and wanted to see what was out there and, and, and kind of digest anything that I hadn't seen. Absolutely. Um, it, How about you? Uh, so You're like, of a different generation. So yeah, so just tell me about you. So like, uh, like, you know, Scott was saying, I'm actually just, I'm 10 years, I'm a decade younger than Scott. So like I'm 41, I'm going to be 42 in like literally three weeks, uh, which is a weird concept. Um, but, um, so like my, my prime time ground was the eighties, um, which it, it probably was a little bit different than Scott because he was at the beginning of the VHS era. I'm like dead center in the middle of the VHS era. I mean, if you think about it, like, like when I'm a little, little kid from like, you know, say eight, like, like say, say seven to like, like 10, I'm in prime mid eighties. So like a lot of my yeah. formative. Yeah, see, I was like launch. I was like launch of HBO era. Yes. Like I mean, I mean, there were no VCRs, and I remember when HBO went off at like midnight and became a test pattern until morning. <laughs> so yeah. So access wise, we definitely grew up in different worlds. Yeah. So uh, you know, it was it was it was weird because so the thing that like. So, like, I mean, of course, Star Wars was always around for me because it was a VHS staple. I mean, as soon as it was out, it was out in 82. Like, I remember seeing Star Wars in a drive-in. Like, I think I to be like, I think I was maybe about four or five, but it's like one of my first formative memories. But the thing that really actually. Yeah, um, it was actually like a like a double feature of of Empire and Star Wars. Like it was like one of those things where like in the middle of summer of 80 when Empire was like raging on like they had a they had a double feature um at the drive-in. Um so like you yeah, know and Star Wars is kind of that, you know, it's almost like the the film the film version of your first kiss, you know. Absolutely. Because the because the crazy thing is I, I was I mean that was 44 years ago for me mm-hmm. and I can remember what theater I saw it in and about where I sat. Yep. All these years later. I remember the car that my parents had. I remember where I was sitting on I was sitting on my dad's lap and not my mom's lap and just watching watching it in this like, you know, in, in the back of a truck. Uh, you know, like the like a like a Toyota, like an 80s Toyota like just truck. They didn't have a pickup. They didn't even have a name for it back in the day. And just like, you know, the, the, like being in the back in the middle of summer, it being super warm and being on my dad's lap, like at four, like four or five. But that's not the movie that really kind of made me into like somebody who like wanted to know about it. And I know this is a weird one, but uh, it was my fascination because like that movie, like Star Wars, like led to Raiders. Um, It was a one, two combo. It was Raiders and Blade Runner. 
So like Raiders was yeah. the one, Raiders was the one that made me go. Okay, I don't want to be Indiana Jones. Whom like this is like <laughs> something that was made up. Like I me- I remember right. distinctly thinking that, and I remember having a conversation with my mom and my dad. I, uh, from what my my mom and my uh, or my dad has told me, a very precocious child. Um, but I was asking, like I asked him, who made this? Like who? Like like who made this story? And he right. was like Steven Spielberg, and I'm like, who is Steven Spielberg? He's the creator of the movie. He made everything. I'm like, he was the one that made the bowl, the bowling ball go run after Indiana Jones. <laughs> he was the one that made everybody melt. Like literally, like I wanted to know who. And he's like, yes. And so like he started to show me. It's really weird how this happened because he started to show me. Um, like he he loved Starlog. So like he started mm-hmm. to show me his Star Logs. And I start mm-hmm. like as a kid, like Which for those who didn't know was a science fiction magazine from ages ago that concentrated on uh sci fi television and film. Absolutely. It's the analogous to to Fango, to Fangoria. Yep, yep, yep. Which on the sci fi side. Exactly, yeah. which I eventually got into uh, much to the chagrin of both parents because, you know, like, I mean, there's a whole other topic about Fangoria and parents thinking that their kids are like devil worshippers and serial killers because they, they were fascinated with it. But Starlog was the first, like, introduction. Like, that was, like, the internet back in the day. Uh, you could see pictures, and I saw pictures of them making Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that kind of dovetailed into... um Seeing like so like the first time that I remember I was watching a movie and it wasn't some kind of thing where it was like just this a fantastical thing that like, you know, that that I couldn't articulate was Blade Runner. So like Blade Runner, my dad, my dad and my mom were very were very um, they were okay with showing R rated stuff, you know, to me. So like I remember distinctly seeing Blade Runner on VHS. And wearing the hell out of that V, it was actually not even VHS. It was beta and writing like just (laughs) literally like wearing out the tape that they recorded. Yes. Like, you know, back in the day, they like, even though they had all those warnings, of course, we all recorded um, movies that we wanted to keep. Right. And um, it was the first movie like Blade Runner was the first movie where. Like, I tried to read the star logs and read like my dad was like a really big like he was he's a ferocious reader. Um, even now, um, I think I get that from more from him than my my mother, though. My mother was also a very uh, voracious reader because she liked nonfiction and my dad liked fiction. But like whenever it was nonfiction, it was either sports or film. And he bought Cinefantastique. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that was a beautiful thing where you could actually go in and I, I wish I still had my copy of Cinefantastique that just was pl- strictly devoted to Blade Runner because I literally like that copy, the edges were worn. It was <laughs> taped back together because of how many times I would just look at the photos and try to read and try to comprehend what Doug Trumbull and all of these mad geniuses were doing. And it's the first, like those two films, Raiders and Blade Runner, and then along with Starlog and Cinefantastique were the things that kind of melted my brain into wanting to know more. Um, 
now it's a long answer, but, and then my, (laughs) and then my writing, my writing came really weirdly. Um, it like, I like my writing is a lot, like has a lot to do with think like the thankfulness of my writing. It has a lot to do with Shane black. Um, because I was of the age where like Shane black was like the King Dick of Hollywood and the, the, the big time screenwriter and just reading every single article that I'd ever like, you know, that, uh, that was ever out that where Shane black talked, I, I would just, you know, it wasn't Quentin Tarantino. Like I know a lot of my generation, it was Quentin Tarantino, but for me, because it was around, it was like 90, 91 when it really kind of hit with the last boy scout with him. Like I read everything that he wrote and he literally was like promoting people, kids or everybody. It's like, you want to, you want to, you want to make something. He's like, the cheapest thing to do is write, just write, write, write. And so like at, probably 12 I wrote my first thing my first creative thing and then from there it kind of evolved into a mishmash of everything of like creative writing but then also critiquing uh, when I got into more into college um so it was it, it was actually like I like I would say it was like Shane Black was like the guy that because it was the first screenplay that I ever got was um a friend of my mother's got me the original screenplays for both Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon 2. And like it was it was a mind-blowing thing to find out that in Lethal Weapon 2, like the Shane Black original script has like has him dying, like literally sacrificing himself for uh for Murtaugh and then Murtaugh killing the killing the South African bad guys and like going just like no no that can't be right and then just like you know like further solidifying my thing about writing in film and wanting to know well why did they change that like that's such a more like as a kid as a 14 year old kid you read something like that I mean, you know, like uh, like somebody once told me, you know, all 14-year-olds are nihilist and punk rock little shits, right? <laughs> uh, which kind of like, like, I love that, like, in this film, I love that they devoted a huge chunk of time to one of my favorite documentaries, which is The Decline of Western Civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really nice. That yeah. uh, it it hits all genres. Yes, that was what was nice. We yeah. get the uh, we get the midnight madness documentaries, and then we get kind of the uh, the the action and and what have you uh, films with you know the warriors uh, and assault on precinct thirteen and things like that, and then you get some comedies with this is Spinal Tap, uh, yes. and then you get into John Waters and some of the other folks. So yeah, it's a nice nice broad overview and one of my favorite things was listening to uh jeff bridges talk about the big lebowski i mean it's hard to beat Uh, well and the funnier thing is is like for me like okay so like you and like okay so like you and i have like two different experiences with jeff bridges i'm pretty sure like my jeff bridges experience was like not really sure until the 90s that I loved Jeff Bridges. Like in the eighties, he was somebody that was so kind of like, who is this dude? Why is my mom so into Jeff Bridges? Like not realizing the whole like sex appeal thing, like just not getting it. Like I was a kid, right? I always thought of him like, to be perfectly honest, I always thought of Jeff Bridges as a lower rent Harrison Ford. Like everybody was a lower rent Harrison Ford, but in the (laughs) nineties with the one, two punch of fearless and the Fisher King, this dude just became like 
my God, like, who is this guy? And then having to go back, like, was, were you always, like, on the Jeff Bridges boat, like, in the 80s? Because in the 80s, like, I find, like, he was doing some really great work, like, star-making work that it felt like was a, underappreciated even then. Yeah, my, uh, you know, my intro to Jeff Bridges was the 1976 King Kong. Ah, yes, with and, Jessica and Lange. So, <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. And so uh, I, I don't recall seeing that in the theater, but I recall that being kind of an HBO staple when I was a kid. Okay. And so I saw it a lot. And so to me, uh, he was kind of like, you know, a leading man in an action type film from the get go for me, because that was the, uh, uh, the time period in his career, uh, where I first saw him. And so, uh, and so, you know, I can see how, depending on when you get introduced to a particular actor, uh, in their filmography can determine how it is that you might view that person. And so he wasn't at all like, you know, to me, like a Harrison Ford or something like that. Somebody who always does those kinds of things. Uh, but that Jeff Bridges persona that exists in, in King Kong, uh, was immediately, you know, the way that I, I thought of him. No, oh, absolutely. Okay. That, that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, it, and it's kind of funny to see that he's morphed basically into the dude. Like the Jeff Bridges is the dude and the dude is <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Um, yeah. Yeah. At times you wonder how much of a performance that really was, or if they were just like, Hey Jeff, just come out, be yourself. Hang out. <laughs> but then but then the best part about it is is that he is like every single period, every single comma, every single word was on the page. And I mean that just kind of like shows you how much yeah. how much the, the Cohen brothers are just like like, you know, how genius they are. And like I what I love is how like it kind of like that the whole big Lebowski thing kind of informs on how like, this is something we've talked a little bit about, about, like, our love of the Coen brothers. But, I mean, I don't think we've really actually talked fully about it. But how they were, like, in the 80s, they were cult figures. Like, I mean, like, from, uh, yep. you know, uh, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, um, yep. and Miller's yep. Crossing. Even, like, even until the 90s, like, with the Big Lebowski, how they were just cult figures. They weren't the American like the du jour American filmmakers like that didn't come until like the two thousands. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I think they go ahead. No, no, no. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no, I was going to say, uh, I, I think that the, uh, uh, fascinating and, and good point that they make in this film is, you know, you don't set out to make a cult film. No. And, uh, and you know, it just winds up being a film that is either, odd enough or boundary pushing enough or just the aesthetic is kind of out of the norm enough that it hits a group of people and it hits them really hard, but it leaves a lot of other people behind. And so that's very much kind of what you were describing about the Cone brothers is, you know, now I think of them far more 
as marketable, bankable filmmakers. But if you look at where they came from, obviously that was not the case. No, absolutely not. Um, and it's it's really interesting to see the like the films that they pick because some of the films like really land for me, but then other ones like I still don't get fucking Rocky Horror. Like I really don't. <laughs> like you know, I think I think the thing about Rocky Horror is the worst thing that you could do is have your first experience with that be sitting at home with a few people watching it. I mean, you know, it's yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, it's like there just is no way to describe a Bruce Springsteen show. You've just got to go to one. <laughs> and everybody that I've ever taken to one, whether they were a huge fan or not, when they left, they knew that they had had an experience. They might not have become the Bruce Springsteen freak that I am, but when they left, they certainly didn't feel like they'd been cheated out of an experience. I mean, they, you know, were bowled over by what they saw. And so I think that probably the Rocky Horror Picture Show and some of these other films that are kind of experiences, you've got to have that experience. And that's probably what gets the hooks into you. Uh, and and so uh, I think that that might be the one exception of them all uh, that is not a very good just kick back in your recliner uh, and turn it on because I find it entertaining uh, at at home and loved Tim Curry's performance uh, and just I mean just the bold confidence of that performance is just incredible but it's nothing like if you have the in theater experience with that film. No, absolutely. And I was going to actually ask you, have you been to a midnight screening of Rocky horror? I have, I have at a, uh, at a theater in, uh, I believe it was in Athens, Georgia while I was in college. Okay. And so of course I had no idea what I was, I was very much a, you know, not to get too much into, all of our personal stuff, but just as far as kind of the formation of, of my film brain, I was very much a multiplex kid because that's what we had. Yeah. You know, as you pointed out, you know, you were in the heart of the VHS era. The VHS era really kind of took off when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And so, so I was very much a, I went to the movies all the time, but it was whatever was playing in uh, the multiplex in a small town in Alabama uh, in the 1980s. And so there were things that, you know, then I went off to college and was like, I don't know what the heck's the Rocky horror picture show. All right. Well, a bunch of my friends are going to go see it. Uh, I'll go with them. And then I was like, Oh my God, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so lots of, you know, uh, boundary pushing mind expanding things, uh, that I got a chance to see, uh, when I was in college, but you know, a lot of it was just, you know, access. I mean, mm -hmm. when you went to the local video store, you weren't stumbling across, you know, VHS copies of Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. You know, yeah. uh, you were going and uh, picking up uh, The Hitcher. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and 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 fry. And I remember, uh, I remember uh, in the earliest days because VCRs were so expensive, you could rent the VCR as well as the tapes. Yes, and um, so that was what we would do. And so I can remember renting the VCR and the tapes and going home and like watching Fright Night five times in a weekend. Yep. You know, stuff like that. Well, and that's where. So, uh, th that's the funny thing ahead. is that. No, no, no. I was just going to say that's where like repeated viewings came. That's where like, like this kind mm -hmm. of obsessive culture came was. Absolutely. With VHS. Um, 
I like, you know, it, it is kind of funny how like us obsessive, like the obsessiveness has changed though. Like I don't hear people talking about, except for with like, unfortunately with Marvel films, like they're, they're the only things that people put on repeat. And it's not even like, like I, like this is something I was meaning to ask you. Like when you were a kid, when you watched movies it wasn't something that you watched inactively in the background like you actually were actively watching it right like like me like i like when i watched blade runner and i can honestly say i probably watched the theatrical cut of blade runner probably good lord maybe by the time i was 18 probably about 150 times like but i mean yeah you know i mean the, well, the funny thing is, is, you know, you almost uh, when you describe yourself you, uh, at, at my age, you know, you almost sound like you came from some flat earth world or something, <laughs> yeah. uh, mostly because not because I'm just ancient, but just because of the fact that technology has advanced so much uh, in the course of that time. Because when I was a kid, you know, there was no time shifting ability. There were no DVRs. There were no VCRs. There were in the earliest part. Uh, of my childhood, there was no way to not watch it while it was on, but watch it later. And so to me, where the repeat viewings came from were places like HBO, you know, you'd flip in and it'd be 30 minutes into Jaws. Yeah. Well, you could either watch the last hour and a half of Jaws or not watch it at all. There was no ability to go back and say, okay, let's start it at the beginning. And so, you know, so in the in the rewatching and the multiple watching, you know, it'd be fascinating if you could actually count fragment watching, you know, like how many mm-hmm. times have you seen a portion of uh, this film? You know, oh, gosh, I've probably seen this scene a thousand times kind of a thing. Uh, and so because back when I was a kid, it was literally, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. And then when they premiered it, HBO. Yep. And so there weren't a gajillion channels for you to choose from. I mean, hell, I grew up in a time that there wasn't even ESPN. You know, sports were all on the major networks. Yep. And so, I mean, I remember when Fox started. I mean, you remember that. That wasn't that yep. long ago. Uh, and so, I mean, that was the first time that there was considered to be a quote-unquote fourth network. Uh, so, uh, so a lot of those viewing habits were just born out of, you know, well, crap, I missed the first 20 minutes of the movie, but, you know, I'm going to watch the rest of it. And, uh, but yeah, always, whenever it was a first watch of anything, I was always kind of anal about that as a, as a kid, I didn't want it to be a partial watch. If if I'd never seen it before, I'd be like, oh, well, I got to catch that the next time it comes on. I was, I was very much wanted to see it from start to finish, uh, you know, the first time that I saw it. And then after that, I could content myself with, you know, oh, this is a cool scene right here. And then I'd be hooked in and and, and watch the rest of the movie, uh, you know, from the middle on or something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it is interesting how like viewing habits have changed. I mean, you like like I've adjusted too. like with the times, of course, you, you like technology and everything trying to change things. But there are certain things that like something from an era that I just don't do. Like I, I still do now. Like um, one of the things that I still do and I'm not sure if you still do it is, is like, like I always loved the old adage of judging a book by its cover. Cause it's like, motherfucker, I'm going to judge a movie by its video cover. Like that's 
all I did in the 80s was was just judge things. Like, if it had a cool cover, I was going to give it a chance. And I think that a lot of this, like like what I'm talking about, <laughs> is, is bore out of the fact that we did not have a lot of choices. Like, now there's just so much. There's just too much almost. Yeah. Well, and 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 you're also hitting on just you know the the fact of the manner in which it was presented to you became an art form unto itself. Absolutely. The the design of the front cover, the information, the kind of sales pitch contained on the back of it, uh, and and so you know you, that was the way that you were shopping. You know now. Uh, and I can't remember, I would give credit if I could remember who it was, but somebody the other day on a podcast was talking about the limitation of like the JPEG approach that, yeah. you know, when you have just a little picture on Netflix or iTunes or wherever, that all the covers now have to be kind of horribly generic because you can't fit a whole bunch of detail into those kind of little JPEG thumbnail pictures or they just become inscrutable. It's just a bunch of stuff. You can't really see anything. And so the days of these really, you know, kind of cool uh, movie poster covers for films and stuff like that uh, are almost gone. It's got to be much bigger, bolder, uh, cleaner lines kind of graphics or when you shrink it down to a thumbnail on some of these various sites, you're, you're not going to be able to tell what it is. Uh, no, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, I did the same thing you did. I'd, I'd see a cool cover and be like, oh, man, I got to check that out. And then how yep. many times did you go home and watch it and be like, what a bunch of bullshit that scene on the cover and even in the movie. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that the- I got ripped off and that looked so cool and it was crap. Um, uh, I think that um, I think that the person I think the person that you were I think the podcast that you were talking about was the Shockwaves podcast episode where they had Mike uh, Gingold on it, the writer. Well, I don't know, like he's kind of a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, no, I think you're right. Good, good catch. Yeah, yeah. that is what it was. Um, he's created like, for guys that like that don't listen to Shockwaves, which I don't know, understand why you wouldn't want to listen to Shockwaves if you listen to this. Um, he, uh, Mike Gingold is a critic and author, and he's released three books. Um, and they're great books, especially if you're into the VHS covers and uh, like advertisements from. Um, from years beyond or years, years ago, um, ad nauseum, which is like basically a, a compendium of reviews and, um, <laughs> and advertisements from, um, for horror films in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And then he has another one ad nauseum part two, which delves into more of the nineties, two thousands and the 2010s. Um, and review review clippings from those and it kind of gives you like a curated view of like poster art uh, and the advertisements yeah. that were used. Yeah. Um, and then he also has another which one. Which is so important to, to the subject in this film, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like like covers were uh, covers and advertisements were uh, like, you know, made in made in broke films. Um, and then he has one last one, which was Ad Astra. Which is a which is one about sci-fi, uh, sci-fi films, sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I have all three um, because of that podcast because I love the fetishistic kind of like advertisements of that era. Uh, it really just kind of hits a it hits something in me that it just makes like it's just like anything. It's like um, deep diving into a subject like you know 
eventually you do come to the cover art, which, like Scott was saying, is something that made or break, uh, made or broke like a lot of these films uh, that we're talking about now, and especially like stuff like trailers too. Like I distinctly remember like some like especially in the eighties those like like so I think that people don't understand now like how we used to ingest and find films and theaters and VHS were very similar because you'd start the movie up and guess what? There were trailers on that VHS and you'd watch them. Like I would watch them because it was like, it was the place that you could find things, especially on like the low, like we didn't think of, I don't, I don't think that you thought of it this way. I, I certainly didn't like when I saw something like, uh, I don't know. Um, like, uh, ice pirates. Let's just give that like a low budget piece of shit movie. And guys, it is don't try to like, don't try to DM me because I'm not on social media right now, but it is a piece of shit movie. Um, it's and it's low rent. Um, but you would watch the trailers, like the trailers on that were for similarly made films, and so like if you were into that movie, yep. you'd want to watch those trailers. And like I said, like it's a VHS like mimicked, and it was something that I didn't realize until I got a little bit older that VHS really mimicked the theater experience because it had all those trailers at the beginning, the PSAs. Like, do you remember like some of those drug PSAs that they would have for no fucking reason on VHS tapes? <laughs> it was like our own version of uh, reefer madness from this, uh, <laughs> from exactly. this midnight madness documentary. It was uh, some kind of strange cautionary tale of, you know, don't sit at home doing drugs while you watch this totally non-druggy kind of movie <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, and, if they put it before pink floyd's the wall i might get it but, uh, <laughs> uh, some of the other stuff uh, i wasn't sure yeah um it, it's just it, like like i find it funny now that like people like like we've come to a point now where you know the the trailers are not even a part of the theatrical experience all people want is just the movie you know, like one or two trailers and then the movie, because we can get all of that data elsewhere. Like, you know, and then how like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you have to think that it was, you know, before internet, before podcasts, before all of this kind of stuff, you had your, your kind of fan magazines, like we were talking about that would come out, you know, once a month or so, uh, that would do science fiction or horror or what have you. Uh, but overall, you know, unless you literally followed the trades and subscribed to like Variety or something, which was horribly expensive back then, uh, you know, uh, you were just kind of uh, scavenging for information uh, about films. I mean, I can remember watching Siskel and Ebert, you know, at the movies uh, on public television and they would start talking about something that they thought was going to be, you know, literally one of the best films of the year. And I never even heard of it. Yep. Because it was either foreign or a documentary or, you know, some indie film or something like that. And like I said, you know, I was a a multiplex kid uh, in a multiplex town. And so none of that news even reached you until, you know, of course, I got older and and, and could go out into the wider world and, and seek that stuff for myself. No, absolutely. Uh, what I loved about like like Siskel and Ebert, um, and then also um, uh, Leonard Malton, like there these were these guys that yep. were like staples. Yep. Like their books, like uh, like all of their video companion guides were like uh, were 
were essential, like a super essential. Like, uh, I also, uh, I was also, a like, but like the funniest thing was, was that it was the, like, I remember at a certain point, like reading or like, like watching Cisco and Ebert and seeing them destroy something that I liked and realizing like, you know, your heroes have clay feet. <laughs> like they're you're, like, like going, Oh, they're wrong. I know they're wrong because I love that movie and kind of like the small formation of like that whole thing of like, everybody's a critic. And I think that that's where like, <laughs> right. like, like I think that right. Siskel and Ebert were the first, were the first people where I was like, no dream warriors, nightmare on Elm street part three dream warriors is one of the best freaking movies in the world. And nobody can tell me any different. And you guys are wrong. You are wrong. You were wrong, Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> um, but then, like, them giving, like, two thumbs up to Steven Seagal movies. And going, sometimes, like, watching Steven Seagal movies and going, uh, 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 okay. <laughs> okay, are you worried that he's going to beat you up? Um, you know, you know it's, it's it's funny what, uh, what cultural icons they became, at least, you know, within a certain age group that would remember them now. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, when I got into uh, uh, the Georgia Film Critics Association, mm-hmm. uh, I can remember that my friends were like, oh, it's, you know, you're a regular Roger Ebert. And, you know, my joke was, yeah, I'm just like Roger Ebert without the Pulitzer Prize and all the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it, it is really um, – it's really weird and interesting how like like uh, like watching this uh, this documentary, how it, it recalls certain things for like for generations. Like I think that some yeah. – like I'm not saying to people that are like – that were born in the 90s not to watch this. I absolutely would highly recommend them watching it because I, I guarantee you that there are films in this – that you probably never seen. I mean, there's a whole generation that probably doesn't get Spinal Tap or doesn't understand Spinal Tap. Like they were like, you know, you know I have to tell you the funniest thing. Uh, I had a, I had a, a, a group of guys that you know I played music with yeah. when I was in junior high and high school. And I mean, I don't know, to call us a garage band would probably be an affront to actual garage bands. Uh, you know, we were guys that you know, you, you know that you have the musician bug. If you can get together with a group of other guys and basically spend a whole afternoon playing the same song, you know, <laughs> until you get it right. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you really got me take 45. Let's play it again. Um, and so it's funny. One of them got spinal tap and it would have had to have been VHS. I don't remember that, but from the time it would have had to have been. And so it was funny to hear Rob Reiner interviewed in this movie because he described us. We were watching this, and of course they were using British accents and everything like that. And so we thought it was a real band from England that that was the basis of this movie. Yeah. And so we kept and so we kept asking ourselves, we were like, because you know, a mockumentary was not something any of us had encountered before. And so they're playing it straight like it's a documentary, but then they do so many things that are just so dumb that you're like, 
now surely this isn't real, right? And we're like, yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, evidently they're a band over there in England and this is happening because, I mean, look at it. And so it was so funny that my first exposure to that film, I was young enough. I mean, I would have probably been, I don't know, 12, 13 when it came out. And so I saw it not too long after that. Uh, you know, all the guys in my band were watching it and we think that this is a documentary about a real band over in England. Uh, although I think by the end of it, most of us had figured out there's just no way this is real. This is some kind of funky version, uh, of a comedy. But when he was describing some people's reactions to the movie, I thought, well, I don't feel all that bad then because I was only like 13 or 14 and I was having that same reaction. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, like that's a movie that I think that we really should cover because it is such a, for me, it's genius. genius. It's, and it's, it's a really formative comedy for me. And I think that to be perfectly honest, like I find that like, this is the weirdest part is that most people don't like, I find that there's like Rob Reiner has the trifecta of like, like and it's really weird to, to to see this is that he has three perfect films in a row. He does he does Spinal Tap, Stand by Me, and Princess Bride. How the hell do you do that? Yeah, yeah, and that's quite a diverse uh, a number of approaches to making a movie too. Exactly, and most people don't remember or realize that Rob Reiner was a huge deal. Because of Mm -hmm. these movies. And Spinal Tap is the one. I mean, it's literally the, it's not the creation of, but it's the, it's the mockumentary that makes everything that's a mockumentary possible. Without that, you don't get The Office. And I think. Yeah, you don't get the Christopher Guest films and all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I think that people, there are certain sectors, like people like us in our age group where like between 40 and like between people in their late thirties to people in their, like say all the way up until like in their sixties, like love this film. But there's a younger generation that I feel like have just don't like have just not seen it and really deserves a rediscovery (laughs) by them. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's just, I would think just musicians would keep that film alive because anybody who's played in a band, it doesn't matter if you've, toured the world and, you know, been to the Grammys or something like that. If you've just ever picked up an instrument and played with a group of people, there are just so many things in that movie that are just universal with musicians mm-hmm. that I'm surprised that alone doesn't keep that movie going. No, absolutely. Or, or like if you've known a band, like if you intimately have known a band, like that is something that like, like you watch that and you go, Ooh, yeah, I know that. I know that. Like, it, and then it's, it's one of those movies that you it like with repeated viewings, it gets funnier. Like, that's the thing that I think that like mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it builds upon your knowledge of it because it's so like what Ryder did with the film is is so genius, like letting them improvise and letting mm-hmm. them just and, and then just basically making like from what I understand, it was filmed over like it, it, I think it's even in the film, the uh, the um, time warp. It, they even say he filmed it over like six weeks. They prepped yep. it for two years. They filmed yep. over six weeks and then they edited over a year. Um, and it shows because it's so deep in its character work like people like there are times when you can just like sometimes i'll put it on and watch it for the background players 
Right. For like rando shots of Billy Crystal in there. And he like shows up randomly and just to see what he does or the late <laughs> or the late great Bruno Kirby. Like Bruno Kirby yeah, is an I love him. He's an assassin in that movie. Uh, uh, or Fran Drescher. Like Fran Drescher, like in full before she was the like a sitcom star, like just full on New York queen being mm -hmm. like in queen meaning like queen, like she was the queen of New York and just doing her thing. It's it's. Like, like that was a movie that I in like as soon as I saw it come up, I'm like, oh damn, I haven't seen Spinal Tap in at least two or three years. I got to put that on my list, so I have it. Like, actually, it's kind of ironic. You talked about the um, guest films. Uh, Warner Archive recently had a sale, and so I bought all three of them because I realized I did not have Best in Show, um, Waiting for Guffman, and uh, A Mighty Wind. Even though I'm That's a awesome. I'm a huge fan of all three and including Spinal Tap, but now I'm gonna probably have to have the mockumentary, um, a film festival and watch all four of them. <laughs> Is there a good edition of Spinal Tap out there? You're my physical media man. I don't know who's put it out most recently. Um, yeah, MGM did a pretty good one. Though I would wait for the Criterion version. I know the Criterion, like Criterion had it on laser and like Laserdisc and DVD. Mm -hmm. That's the one to own, but the DVD is DVD. It's SD standard. The reason sure. why it had it's the one to own is because it's the one that has the Rob Reiner, Michael McKeon, um, Harry Shear, and uh, who's the last guy? I can't even forget. I, I always forget the last guy. I'm blanking too. Oh God, Harry Shear, Michael McKeon. Oh God, who is it? Uh, Christopher Guest. <laughs> Not in character, just talking about the film. Like their commentary is just the mm -hmm. nuts and bolts of how it was put together. It's an amazing commentary track. Oh, cool. Uh, the one, the MGM Blu-ray has a really nice picture. It has, um, has a lot of. It has like ninety minutes of deleted scenes, which is amazing. But the commentary that they do. It's fun the first time you watch it. It's the it's the guys in character as Spinal Tap. Ah, uh, uh, gotcha. So, so the first time you watch it, it's really fun because it's like Mystery Science Theater. But after that, it's more like, oh, I want that old commentary track with Rob Reiner where he dissects everything. They dissect everything in that right. in that movie. So, like, I know that you can pick up the Spinal Tap the 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 MGM Blu-ray for like six bucks. But if you don't want to spend the six bucks, you want to wait a little bit. I, I've heard rumors that um, that's another one that's on in the pipeline for Criterion uh, because they're trying to basically re-get back all of their old um, – because of the way the physical media is going. Right. I've heard that the rumor is is that they want to get all of their old titles, like all of their old titles back onto the collection at least at some point in some right. form so lots that, of upgrades exactly so that one would be like a dvd to blu-ray upgrade which would be fantastic and they have mgm titles they just haven't released which mgm titles they have um and no one has seen it in the puzzle picture that they give out at the beginning of the year, <laughs> which, yeah, that's a thing in and of itself. The Criterion, um, the Criterion mystery photo where we're all trying to figure out what they uh, what they're trying to release or what they're trying to announce mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, without announcing. Um, but but yeah, um, 
yeah, like Spinal Tap is like one of those movies where I was just like watching it again, like watching it on that film. I'm like, oh man, I gotta watch that again. But, yeah, that is that is one of the nice things uh, about this documentary. Like I told you, depending on where it where it finds you in mm-hmm. kind of your movie education or movie evolution. Uh, for some people, they may have only seen just a couple of these movies, if even any of them. Yeah. And so it would be an amazing watch list seeing these people go through this uh, and give you a nice, uh, you know, uh, to-do list uh, for the future. And then for those of us who have seen pretty much all of them, uh, I had the same reaction with a number of them. I was like, man, it's been too long since I've seen that. I really need to see that again. Um some of them I actually had seen recently. I actually did uh, a couple years ago uh, one of those. Uh, I'm going to do the 30 days of horror kind of idea. I'm mm-hmm. going to watch a, a horror movie almost every day or something that is horror-ish. And uh, so I had watched Assault on Precinct uh, uh, 13 mm-hmm. back uh, in whatever it would have been, October 2018 when I did that. Uh, I had rewatched The Warriors. And so some of the things uh, on here I had seen uh, but some of them, it's been uh, way too long, so it uh, has made me decide that I, I need to rewatch them. Yeah, one of the big ones for me um, uh, is Freaks. Todd Browning's Freaks. I, it's been so long yeah, since I've seen that. Yeah, I hadn't that. thought of that movie in forever. So yeah, that's a good point. That was one that I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even tell you the last time I'd seen that. And then, like the smartest thing that they do in that in in the movie is all i remember from freaks is the freaks i didn't remember the storyline and then when they recount the storyline that's when i was like oh damn i really need to rewatch this because i completely forgot about everything in that movie how it's almost set up like a film noir mm-hmm. um like um like it's almost like a lonely place uh the the humphrey bogart nicholas ray movie a lonely place but with but with like a carnival and I just, it instantly. That's my favorite Bogart film. Oh really? Oh, that's yeah. such a good, the phone call. Yeah. It's the... just, it's just incredible. Oh God. He, he was a guy that it, he, he didn't hit me until I saw that film. Like when I saw that film and I saw the jealousy in that film, like it's such a palpable film that I'm like, yeah, you know what? I got to go back. And then his career hit me in a different way. But, um, but freaks, that is something that I actually put on my list and I'm actually going to, I'm hoping that I think Warner archive has it. I'm hoping that there's a Blu-ray of it. Like I really am. Um, because I really would like to revisit that one. That was one of the ones that became was like instantly like, yep, I've got to see this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely one that I need to put on my uh, my <laughs> endless uh, watch list. Absolutely. And, you know, I got a longer watch list in the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Um, any other thoughts about this first part? Uh, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the other uh, the other two. I uh, I thought that, uh, you know, it was uh, it was well, well done and I enjoyed the insights. And then the one other thing that I really appreciate from just a journalist standpoint is that the talking heads don't all repeat themselves. No, they absolutely you know, do too not. often you have people and somebody will say, well, you know, it was a groundbreaking film. And then the next person they talk 
to believe it was really a groundbreaking film. And the next person, you know, it was a film kind of unlike any other film. It was really groundbreaking. And so you're kind of like, you know, after all that, you're like, uh, so was it a groundbreaking film maybe? Is that what the consensus opinion is? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it just, a, a lot of times it's just like the, the, the material that they got when they were shooting it is just so generic that then when they had to cut a movie together, it's basically a bunch of people saying the same thing. Yeah. And so the nice thing about this, this film is that's not the case. It's like each person who is commenting is adding a new ingredient or bringing up a new subject or bringing up a new aspect of the film that they're talking about. And so I think that they do a really nice job in the editing of making sure that each person is contributing something unique, because obviously they had a lot of footage to choose from and it's very easy to get into that kind of repetition kind of thing. And so uh, I thought, you know, at a, whatever it was about an hour and 30 some odd minutes that it was, you know, nice and lean and to the point and uh, and covered a lot of ground. And so it's not flashy uh, no. doing it. You know, it doesn't break any, you know, uh, new ground when it comes to technique or something like that. But a lot of subjects don't require that. You know, no. I like just a well-researched, well-edited, informative, you know, journalistically solid documentary uh, about an aspect of film. And that's what this is. You're 100% right. Like, I... Um... That's what I loved about it is that it wasn't trying to break ground, but what it was doing was exactly what you were saying. It was getting people to talk about films that they loved, but in a manner in which only a filmmaker or because they all they are a critic, a filmmaker or a critic could do or a star could do, which is, is that they talked about the movie and why it was important to them and not to the grand masses, which I loved, which because of the subject cult films is kind of like the perfect way to do it because they're trying to sell you. Like I've never heard Rob zombie more passionate than when I heard him talking about both spinal tap, which I didn't even know the dude could laugh or had a sense of humor and, <laughs> and his Russ, his Russ Meyer fetish. It, it made me understand why he loved Russ Meyer. Like Russ Meyer to right. me was like this dude, like it makes me want to reapproach it. And I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to look, I actually have the Russ Meyer movies from the Criterion collection. I'm going to actually get more so that I could actually watch them because for, for me, it was more of like this dead fetish for him. Like it was like, Oh God, you know, the, 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 the razor blade and tape kind of way of making things. I'm like, Oh God, come on. But then the way he described it, in the way that he talked about Myers films, I'm like, okay, so somebody needs to get this dude to do commentaries for all of Myers films, but also he makes me want to see them. And like, that's the kind of power that this, that this film, that this film has is that it sells you on each of the films and some of them you'll go, eh, but other ones you'll go, oh yeah, I want to see that now. Yep. Exactly. And I look forward to uh, there's a, a, you know, we mentioned at the top of the podcast kind of what the release schedule was, uh, but there will be the horror and sci fi installment will hit VOD uh, on May the 19th. And so the uh, lineup on that one is Jeff Goldblum, Sean Young, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Bruce Campbell, Roger Corman, John Sayles, Ed Neal, once again, Rob Zombie. 
uh, and quite a number of other people, and they touch on everything from Night of the Living Dead to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to your fave Blade Runner mm-hmm. uh, to A Clockwork Orange and on and on. So uh, the uh, I'm sure that we will, uh, in a few weeks, have a discussion about Volume 2 and uh, put out a podcast on it as well. Absolutely. I'm very much so looking forward to that one. Um, And the other one, which is something that we don't often talk about, uh, which is uh, comedies. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I I really look forward to that. You're right. We uh, we have a tendency to uh, get involved in genre stuff and uh, and serious drama and things of that nature. And 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 much like the Oscars, you know, you can have a tendency to give comedy uh, not enough credit. Absolutely. Um, so I'm looking forward to both of them and reapproach and discussing both of them as we move forward. Uh, Scott, where can people find you this week? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter at M Scott underscore Phillips. Uh, I do video reviews, uh, of, uh, current releases, which these days are mostly on home video, uh, at WRBL.com. Uh, and then I do the majority of my written work at, uh, the movie your home. Yes. And that's where you can find this and my writing, uh, themovieisle.com. Uh, the Twitter handle is themovieisle. Um, so is the Instagram. I'd say go to Instagram because I'm off of Twitter. I I, I mean, we just post the the, the links to the articles um, and to our podcasts um, there. B-Movie Podcast has both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the handle is bmoviepod. Uh, for both of them, you can like, I would prefer you to go to the Instagram because the Instagram has more content on it. But if you want to know when our, uh, when these, um, episodes are dropping, you can always just follow us there and, uh, you'll have the article links directly to it. Or, you know, you could be wild and actually subscribe to, uh, to us on iTunes or Google play, which, uh, Scott, I haven't told you, and we should just talk about it here. Like we actually have gotten like, since this whole quarantine bullshit has happened, uh, we actually have had like a rise in episode listening like like people oh, are downloading nice. but also the most important thing is that we've actually got uh, like you know more subscribers which i was actually genuinely shocked i don't ever chuck that stuff because i just i let it go i get a monthly email where i can i can get told that and then the last one i actually checked um, because I was cleaning out my inbox and I found, I was like, oh, whoa, maybe I should check Google Play and um, uh, and iTunes. And I did. And I was genuinely shocked that we are actually doing like better than we've done before. So, you know, I, uh, like, I guess quarantine people are thinking that they're running out of content on podcasts. <laughs> I, I, and the funniest thing is, is that they're staying like like I can tell who like who is listening right. and who is like continually like they, they'll they won't tell me names but they'll tell me subscribers are listening to x number of of episodes and i'm like oh wow you subscribed and you listened and you're continuing to listen okay <laughs> i like nice. that so nice. yeah good to know so, yeah Thank absolutely you. so um yeah please guys go in the past and take a look at our our catalog we have um like you know we have the current uh iteration but we also have stuff from the past so please um go ahead and do that your your listenership does mean a lot to us we we love doing this but it also it's also nice to know that people are actually listening and next week um this is actually definitive because okay so guys insider baseball true talk 
Fuck, man. We we were like in the middle of doing our research for the for the Mike Flanagan episode. We were super stoked for it. And then we started seeing that other podcasts were posting out things. And we want we don't want to like with somebody as new as Flanagan, you kind of don't want to saturate the market. So we're just putting it on hold for a little bit, just a little bit, um, because yeah, I, I just, I don't, like, I think that Scott feels the same way, is that, like, if we're going to give you, like, a two-part, three-hour discussion about Flanagan and really deep dive, we don't want to have another podcast out there. We want our open space to do it. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I, uh, you know, that's just kind of the journalist in you that, you know, it's, it's, it's not the big scoop that you thought it was when other people are currently covering it. So, uh, we may shelve the idea for a little while and, and, and revisit maybe when, uh, Bly Manor drops one of these days, yes. uh, we'll, uh, we'll highlight his work. Absolutely. I think that that might actually be a pretty awesome, um, point for it, but also additionally, guys, that means we're giving you an entirely new episode next week, a film that I've seen that I am so excited to talk to you guys about. I don't think Scott has seen it yet, but he's the one that actually recommended it to me. So we'll have that conversation next week. Just just so that they know how sophisticated things are behind the scenes. My text <laughs> was my text was, I've heard that this is a badass movie. And then you saw it before I did and agreed. So cool. Absolutely. That's literally how it went. It was like I saw that this came out of this I heard from film festivals is badass. I'm like, okay. I went and checked it. I was literally, I had a half day at work. I literally saw it was, it, it, it filled certain requirements for me of things that I will instantly watch. And it had like literally only one of them is an instant watch, but literally it had like four things that were instant watches for me. So like I dropped my plans of watching the Chris Hemsworth Netflix action film Extraction. And I just watched that and I was so much, ha- I was Extraction is like a blunt instrument. It it does what it does and it does it well, but it's it's a hammer. This movie that we're going to talk about is a fucking this is a fucking badass razor's edge <laughs> piece of genre. So I, I'm super excited to talk to you guys about it and I will we will we will let it post so that you guys can discover it and we'll have you guys have the hard uh the we'll give you the hard sell on it. So until next time, we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.